again. We've been studying Paul's uh, two letters to the Thessalonians. We're in his second epistle, written shortly after the first. Uh, They were going through very difficult times, as we saw from the idea that I presented last week, and that is, how would they prosper in the midst of adversity? Well, there's only one way, really, to prosper, and that is with an abounding faith and increasing love. They were growing in the midst of very difficult times. But some questions had been raised by three different possibilities. And we'll deal with that when we get to in, into the text. Uh, something disrupted them. And I simply point you in our text to verse 2 where it says, we uh, reading the last phrase or last sentence of verse 1, we ask you not to be soon shaken or troubled in mind. Uh, the same word that Jesus used, let not these things trouble you. There's almost a direct parallel between this text of Scripture and the Olivet Discourse, which we read part of it this morning in chapter 24. And the admonition, and this is what I predicate my message title on this morning, is found in verse 3, where he admonishes the Thessalonians, let no one deceive you. I don't know if you picked up In the Matthew passage, there were three references there to deceive or deception. It was interesting, I was listening to a preacher who was preaching on eschatology, and he said the first command, the first piece of instruction, when they ask him, what shall be the signs of your return? The first admonition is, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive deceive you. None of us are invulnerable to deceit. We're all vulnerable. We all can be led astray in some way or another. That's just the nature of who we are. We are people subject lies it was our first parents Eve herself who was deceived in the transgression Satan tempted her and deceived her and she succumbed to that deceit Adam sinned willfully And he plunged the whole human race into sin. And consequently, our minds, our whole being has been affected. Sin permeates our being and it permeates our thinking. And we're subject to deceit. We need what I call wisdom. A great infusion of wisdom which we'll bring out here Shortly, implied in that word shaken in mind, I think, is the idea of confusion. They were confused. Someone, something had come and intruded into the assembly there and upset them greatly. Now, Paul had instructed them, verse 5, said, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, they shouldn't have been shaken, but they were. 
that tells me that even the best of minds, the best of Christians can be deceived. And that includes you. And it includes me. We ever need to be on guard about deception. We see it all the time in the media. We see it all the time from government. We see it in our academic institutions. We see it in society in general. People living in a world of self-deception, their own self-deception. And so they were troubled, they were confused. I came across an interesting analysis from a lady who is a professed agnostic. Her name is Eleanor Margolis. And she writes an article in iNews, it's called, In Response to the War in Ukraine. She says, I'm an agnostic, but news about Ukraine war is so scary right now that I've considered becoming, quote, a nun. That's what she said. She writes in this article, says, those of us without traditional religion are left to make our own peace with uncertainty. Now think about that for a moment. A professed agnostic. We are left to make our peace with uncertainty. <clears throat> How would you like to live life in constant uncertainty? Now a Christian, of all people who are studied Christians, who are mature Christians, have a measure of certainty because their lives are predicated upon truth. And she makes this confession. She says, there's nothing comforting. There's nothing comforting about being agnostic. I thought that was revealing words. And agnosticism is that can't know for sure. Can't know for for certain about life, how it all began, for sure. And on top of that, we can't be sure that there is a God. That's what agnosticism says, in effect. She laments her agnosticism and muses about the benefits of faith. She writes this, it was in February, while Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, that I started to wonder if it was time to find God. Definite God, that is. Not the half-hearted agnostic one built on a Jenga tower. You know what Jenga tower is? That's those little blocks that are built up and you pull, slide out little uh, wood slices. That's a Jenga tower. And so she's using that analogy, not the half-hearted agnostic one built on a Jenga tower of uncertainty. The addition of a heightened nuclear threat from Putin made me desperate for a vengeful Old Testament God. <clears throat> there you go. Someone to smite the warmongers and oligarchs, the evil ones. The evil ones know what they want to do when nothing is left of civilization but the cockroaches. She said, the last time I felt so envious of religious people was when my mom was dying of cancer. Certainty about an afterlife sure would have come in handy then. And prayer might have created the illusion that I had some power over this situation. Instead, I was treated to the spiritual equivalent of the shrug emoji. The shrug emoji. I became a devout follower of one true religion of the 20th, first, the 21st century. You know what that is? She says, uncertainty. 
That's what happens when you dispense with truth, or even the idea of truth. That is what post-modernism has done for us. It is created an environment of uncertainty. And that if there is truth, it is unknowable. We can't know it. And then she finishes here, those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty. Oh, make peace with that. You can't know anything. Now the Christian has been elevated in unique ways. And these believers at Thessalonica had been elevated. Paul had taught them for weeks on end. And taught them things about eschatology and taught them things about which he recounts here in this context. But something happened. They were disturbed on two levels or two things. Number one was the parousia or the coming. That's the Greek word for coming or advent. Found in our text, verse 1, Now brethren concerning or with respect to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's subject number one. Now in the first epistle, you remember that each chapter highlighted some aspect of God's dealing with the advent, the coming of Christ a second time. But one in particular was chapter four of the previous epistle. At the end of the chapter, they again were in a state of uncertainty. Verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be agnostic, not knowing. No certainty. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And in reality, There is no hope in uncertainty. There's no hope. Uh, That is a futile pursuit in life. There's no end to that. When you die, uh, the typical view is is that you're cremated or you're buried and the bugs eat you up. And that's the end. That's, That's all there is to my existence. There's no purpose to life. Life is uncertain. It's confusing. I'm, and so he raises these subjects that he'd already addressed. And here in this text he goes on to say, If we believe that Jesus died, verse 14, rose again, even so. This is the logical connection. This is the link. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who died. That's a metaphor, not a metaphor, metaphor, but a figure of speech, metonymy, sleep for death. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until, until the parousia. Now notice he's framing that in a context of church life and church history. Church history from the standpoint they didn't know where they were in church history. They knew that it was relatively young where the church was. But here we are 2,000 years later. And we're alive. And I believe the Lord's coming is near. But they had this sense, and they always lived with a sense of eminence. That Christ could come, as I said before. Death for you, for me, is imminent. It's always there on the threshold somewhere. You're going to die, I'm going to die. It's imminent. It, that's what it means. It can happen at any time. It might happen in a wreck. It might happen with cancer. It could happen a multitude of ways. But it looms out there as a reality. There's no uncertainty about that. 
The coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And so he's addressed this subject of the coming of the Lord in our, in our text and in the previous letter. And then he says, and our gathering together to him. Now it's interesting, the, the sentence or the phrase, we ask you, is actually the first thing in the sentence. And the word ask there denotes the idea of a, a strong ask, asking with the intent of complying with what he is asking them to do. I urge you, it could be translated, we urge you, or we, as some translations put it, we beseech you. That's the first thing. In other words, there's an urgency about this subject. The coming of the Lord and the second aspect of that, our gathering together to Him. And what most understand that to mean is the second coming of Christ when the resurrection and in conjunction at the same time as the resurrection we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air that's the gathering that's the gathering and it's it's a very profound expression there. It's used only twice in scripture. Episunagages is the Greek word there. Synagogues is the word that we get synagogue from, a synagogue. It's a gathering. It's a gathering. And and the writer of Hebrews says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. So he's talking there about an assemblage of people at the end of the age, at the coming of Christ. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ, died in the Lord, yet in the presence of the Lord, will receive glorified, resurrected bodies. We will not precede them, but we will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. At the gathering, that's what I think he has in view here, the gathering together to him, and that is Jesus, referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. We ask you, don't be disturbed. Don't be shaken in mind. In other words, it was affecting their thought processes. What were they thinking? Well, they were thinking wrongly about the coming of Christ and the gathering to him. And he sets that forth in the very last phrase of verse 2. As though the day of the Lord had come. Whatever interrupted, whatever interfered with their thinking and unsettled them, it had to do with the day of Christ. Or there's a variant reading there, it could be the day of the Lord. Nonetheless, it's the same thing. It is that time of the unfolding of God's judgment here on the earth. The great tribulation. Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. It's outlined in scripture in different names, different nomenclature, but it's a seven-year period. And that's what Jesus is referring to in the Sermon on the Mount, the tribulation period. The tribulation period. They were experiencing what I called in, in the first here what I call mind disturbance mind disturbance someone had sowed a seed of doubt in their minds and it comes from the spirit of guile or deceit their purpose 
either in supposedly receiving a prophetic word, and that's what it means, I think, either by spirit or by word, could be a spoken word, or by an epistle, a letter. No matter what the source of this information is, don't let it unsettle you. But it had. Stop it, is the sense here. Stop it. Your mind is disturbed right now. And so he calls upon them in verse 5, just reflect a moment, think for a moment about what exactly I taught you when I was there those weeks in Thessalonica. Think about it. This is, in my opinion, a strong text of Scripture for what we call a pre-trib rapture. Our gathering to Him is before the day of the Lord. That's the reality. He's coming for His church, His chosen bride, which we sang this morning, what if it were today? Coming for His chosen bride. We'll hear the shout of the archangel, the trump of God. And it will take place just in a snap of a finger. Professed. Now, in each, each of these instances, notice this prepositional phrase. Actually, he says, as if from us. In other words, whatever the source of this information was, whether it was a prophetic announcement, whether it was a word, a spoke a word, whether it was a letter, it was a forgery, it was a counterfeit. Because we gave this, this information to no one. Matter of fact, we taught you differently. But that's where we get into this whole issue of our vulnerability. This is the churches and the people of God's vulnerability that we are all subject to deception. Uh, the church is just saturated today with false teaching and people just lap it up and I'm not to be all and end all you need to examine everything I say in light of God's word too and call me into account same with all of God's ministers his, his preachers they need to be call, called into account if they're out of line if they say things contradictory, it's pr professed to be spoken or written as if from us. That E.W. Bullinger translates this last phrase this way, as if the day of the Lord has set in. In other words, it's been initiated. Now keep in mind that they were in a time of great adversity. And they may have been led astray in their adversity to think that this was that day of the Lord. That they had somehow missed the rapture. That they had somehow entered into that day unbeknownst to them. And so the Apostle Paul has to deal with what I call here in verse 3, the sequence of events. The sequence of events. What does he write here in verse 3? Read with me. Let no one deceive you by any means. And I think in context, it's any of the means that I have already listed for you in verse 2.
Jessica Siegel in a in an article written in Knowable magazine <clears throat> called The Truth About Lying. So nobody likes to be lied to. Is generally agreed that lying is a sin or is not socially acceptable and potentially harmful. Some people believe they are smart enough to spot a liar and have no worries about being duped. She goes on to write, current research on the subject plainly shows that they are not giving credit to man's master ability to distort and deceive. Researchers list a surprising 102 possible nonverbal cues that are alleged to expose a liar. The most prominent ones are averted gaze, blinking, talking louder, shrugging, shifting posture, and movements of the head, hands, arms, and legs. These are supposed to give people a clue if someone is lying. Going on, she says, numerous studies have found people to be overconfident in their perception and judgment. She points out a study that was done at Texas Christian University, which revealed that no student volunteers were only able to pick true from false statements better than 54% of the time. In other words, you're confronted with information, wherever it comes from the media, government. As, a, as, a, an, as a, an adult human being, on average, you're only able to figure out in a hundred things 40, 47% of the time. Rest of the time, you're going you're gonna to make a mistake. And so she says it's just slightly above chance. And that means a 50-50. It's slightly above chance. Even experts who are trained in this area are failing. Studies found that police officers know better than 50-50 in recognizing true and false statements. I suppose Steve could speak to that as a police officer. If you know who and who isn't telling the truth, I'm sure you've been exposed to it. <laughs> Okay. So police officers know better than 50-50 in recognizing true and false statements told during recorded outbursts by emotional family members who later were found to have committed horrific crimes. Psychologist Ronald Fisher, she writes, who trains FBI agents, warns that good liars are good liars. And Satan himself is a good liar. He appears as an angel of light, a false apostle, or apostles in the Corinthian assembly. And they were buying in to what these false apostles were teaching and berating the apostle Paul and introducing error. That's why Paul warned the Ephesian elders that they need to be on guard. They need to be aware. I found a, another interesting article. <clears throat> It's entitled, the, Surprise, the Surprising Patron of Truthfulness. In this article, they write, historian, philosopher, and author Richard Revesis, a senior fellow in Think Tank Brookings Institute, he is concerned that most people can't distinguish between truth and truthfulness. And error and a lie are not the same. He gives the example of COVID-19. 
When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, we all wanted instant, accurate advice on what to do and what not to do. But the virus was novel. Scientists were scrambling to figure out what it was, how it spread, how to defeat it. The honest answer to many of our urgent questions was, we don't know yet. The most important question for citizens is not whether public health advice is always right. It's whether the public health officials are consistently trying to get it right and communicating the full, quote, painful truth. Honesty and clarity. Trust is built on truthfulness, which is a quality rather than truth. We don't like the deliberate lie, but acknowledge someone may be making an honest mistake. Truth is empirical, but truthfulness is ethical. Truth is the end product. Truthfulness, a vital element in its production. The real problem is a loss of virtue, specifically the virtue of truthfulness. A lot of what we experience on a day-by-day basis they don't possess that virtue they're not concerned about truthfulness getting it right and he points out the patron saint that patron saint is found in John 1 he calls him Nathaniel remember he was under a fig tree in the gospel of John chapter 1 he said he has a good claim to the patron saint of truthfulness he was told about Jesus by a fellow disciple and he scoffed can any good come out of Nazareth but Messiah Christ knowing that he had said that exclaimed behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit or no guile Christ was clearly not applauding Nathaniel for the truth of his statement and that is can anything good come out of Nazareth, but for his willingness to speak his mind for his truthfulness. In a world since the fall of man and the God of this world governing the hearts of men to one degree or another by his proxies is a world full of deceit. And they were experiencing an onslaught of it here at Thessalonica don't don't let anyone deceive you by any means for that day will not come that's in italics but it's implied by the translators it's implied in the text that day will not come unless number one a falling away comes first and then the man of sin is revealed the son of Perdition. In other words, as you see the unfolding events of the world around you in Thessalonica, have you seen the man of sin yet? Have you seen this man, the son of perdition? And furthermore, has there been a falling away? Now there's debate on to, to what he's referring to here. A lot of contemporary students say he's, he's referring there to uh, uh, an apostasy. The apostasy. I remember I first in seminary was introduced to the idea that the falling away here, is, it is the Greek word aposteo, or apostia, which means a departure or a falling away. The context determines what it's all about. And I believe it's one of those words for the rapture because from Earth's point of view, when the church is taken out, it is a departure. It is a departure. I was listening, well, some time ago, and then I, I just picked it up again, a video by Prophecy Watchers with Tommy Ice, who is uh, an avid student of eschatology. He edited and worked on what was called the pre-trib rapture um, 
paper. It was a it was a little newspaper study paper that was delivered, and I I subscribed to it and uh, had a website could go to and access all the articles there from them. And he pointed out that there is a lineage in terms of translation of this word even going back to the 4th century, the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin word there, if we were to translate it, would be departure. Unless the departure comes first. And that is first in sequence. That's what has to happen before anything else unfolds. My opinion. There's always been apostasy in the church, ebbs and flows of it. And I suspect one of the greatest apostasies in the church took place when Constantine, in the 4th century, made the church a state church. And from that point on, it has only exacerbated, gotten worse, in terms of adding to and taking away from the faith. But he points out also... I found this helpful that in the Wycliffe Bible it's translated departure. Another version of the Wycliffe Purvey Bible is translated departure. And then in the Tyndale Bible 1526 is translated departure. Coverdale Bible again departure. Cranmer Bible departure. The Great Bible is translated departure. Geneva Bible departing. Breach's Bible, Departing, 1576. The Reims Bible, which is the Catholic translation, is translated Revolt. And even in modern versions, some sense of a rebellion or an apostasy is translated there. But the Beza Bible translates it Departing. Geneva Bible, later edition, 1608, translates it again, Departing. I think it has a good, good lineage in terms of translation and understanding to take here the falling away, not of apostasy, because he, if, if it's used with apostasy, apostasy, it gives a noun or something from which one is, is rebelling against or moving away from. Uh, and the only place it's used other than here is Acts 21, 21. The accusation of Paul is that he's departing from Moses. Not an actual apostasy, but uh, but from the Jewish perspective, they, he was departing by his teachings from what Moses taught the people of God to believe. So you take it for what it's worth, but I think it fits in well with what he's talking about. That this departure, if it indeed is the rapture, that has to come first. And then, sequentially... The man of sin is revealed. Some texts say the man of lawlessness. The upshot of it is is basically the same. This is a man who is characterized by sin and lawlessness. And he has to be revealed. And we know his identity. It's outlined through scripture. The book of Daniel chapter 7. He is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 8, he's the king of, first, uh, of fierce countenance. In chapter 9, he is the prince that will come. In chapter 11, he is the willful king. Jesus refers to him as the abominable one who desolates. The abomination of desolation as well as Daniel because he's quoting from Daniel. John in his epistle refers to him as Antichrist. Antichrist is coming. He is called the beast in the book of Revelation. His cohort is the false prophet. So we, we don't lack for any correlation in terms of the identity of this man. He is the man who quintessentially is the manifestation of sin in all of its ugliness. He is the lawless one. 
And did we not read in Matthew 24 that the age which would characterize the second coming of Jesus Christ would be an age of lawlessness? Who do you think is behind the lawlessness of our land? People accuse people of being puppets of some greater and grander scheme out there. The, the one who is the great conspirator is Satan himself. Amen. And he pulls the puppet strings of those who follow him. And this man will be the epitome of Satan when he is revealed. There's going to be a manifestation. And now here, I think, is when they begin to put their thinking caps on. Here's when they begin to reorganize their mind. Here's where their disturbance begins to calm. They look at each other. Well, he hasn't, he's not here. He's not here. The man of sin isn't here. And they could, in essence, breathe a sigh of relief. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. I think this calmed their fears. And then he says he's the son of perdition. Son of perdition. The word perdition means, and, and the phrase could be translated, son devoted to destruction. And that's the end of this man, is destruction. Revelation chapter 19 is clear on that. that when Christ comes back again, the beast and the false prophet are destroyed and cast into everlasting and eternal punishment in the lake of fire. He is the son devoted to destruction. And then finally, and I'll deal with this hurriedly in verse... Verse 4. It is the strategy of the lawless one. What is this strategy? Notice it says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. His strategy, when that time comes, is one of exaltation. First, pass, first half of the tribulation period, the harlot rides upon the beast. Second half of the tribulation period, he overthrows the influence of the harlot and he takes command. He rises up as that great world leader. And at that occasion, he exalts himself above. Look back at Daniel with me. Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel chapter 11. Verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For, with what, for what has been determined shall be done. This is that man. He, ex it's, he exalts himself up above God and he expects to be worshipped as God look also at Revelation chapter 13 Revelation chapter 13 verse 6 then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwelt or dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All 
who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He exalts himself. I believe this takes place in the middle of the tribulation period. That hadn't happened. So he's describing here and giving the strategy. The second part of this is that he is showing himself. He is exhibiting himself as God. A lot of men, Caesars and Tsars and so forth, and even uh, Kim Jong-un in Korea sets himself up as a god and people worship him. Dictators do that. And this man will do the same. He'll set himself up as God to be worshipped as God. So there's an exaltation and exhibition on the part of the strategy of the lawless one. So we'll, we'll transition out here. This, this is an important study. This, this, I think, are the days in which we are living. There's no question in my mind. I was reading, listening to Amir Sarfati the other day, and he says he gets the question a lot of times from people. Are we living in that time before the coming of the Lord? And he says, if I understand the signs of our time, we are. We're living in that time before Christ comes. Anybody who doesn't see it has to be blind. And so I believe not only did they breathe a sigh of release, relief, but peace came in the assembly. And it's one of those occasions that Paul addressed the Colossians, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Peace came back into the assembly. And I believe they dealt with whatever source came to them, whether it was an individual, or the letter, or some prophecy that was given. They dealt with it at that point. And either excommunicated somebody or called up somebody to repent. But we live in a, in a time, postmodern thinking has set the stage, I believe, to reject absolute truth as it is given to us in the scriptures. Amen. This is the time in which we live. Men will believe anything and everything and yet nothing of substance. Nothing of substance. It'd be very easy in the Western world for a man to be deluded by a lie. It happens every day. Whether it's advertising, whether it's in a movie, whether it's from the White House, (laughs) it's there. Truth-seeking has been gutted from our educational system. That happened a long time ago. Over 20 years ago, George Barna in one of his regular reports indicated that most Americans are likely to base truth on feelings. It always bothers me when people, well, I feel this way about it. (laughs) Okay, that's emotional. That's an emotional response. That's not a thoughtful response. Your response is, I believe it's this way. That's looking at it objectively. Why do I say that? Why do I say all this? Uh, If ever there were a time that we need to be clothed with the armor of God, it's, it's the day in which we live. We need to have our minds cleared. We need to have our hearts purified. As James warns us, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Weep and mourn. There needs to be an expressed humility, a contrition on the people of God, and a pleading to Him for truth. 
that it might reign supreme. We did a study some time ago about the subject of wisdom and the importance of that truth, but it's all predicated on one truth, and that is reverence for the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. The beginning of knowledge is Yahweh. And as I pointed out, wisdom is multifaceted. It includes understanding. It includes prudence. It includes knowledge. It includes discretion. It includes constant learning. That's part of the mix. It it includes receiving counsel from others who may have better insight, better information. Counsel is necessary. Not only as with discretion, but discernment. Also diligence, truth. Teaching, hope, thought life. All of these are involved in wisdom and more. We need wisdom for the hour that we live in. God help us, God help me to be able to filter through all of the nonsense that's out there and filter it through the Word of God. Don't filter it through your own mind. The heart is deceitful above everything. Desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, try the heart. I try the reins. God's the only one that knows your heart. Don't look from within. Look from without to a source of This is revealed truth. Yes, God used men to write it, but God revealed it. Both Old and New Testament. So be fortified with the truth and always seek the truth and to be truthful. Join me in a closing word of prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that you have so worked in history to leave us the legacy of scripture and to have it in our own tongue, our own language whereby we can read it and be strengthened and edified and know that these are the words of God spoken through the prophets, spoken through the apostles, spoken through the judges and that great prophet Moses Jesus, who is the great prophet of all, God has spoken through him in these last days. Christ is coming. May we be fortified against error, fortified with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So take your hymn book.